Coming up in this bonus episode of the Sark Fighter podcast, some of the leading experts on SAF, sarcoidosis-associated pulmonary hypertension, a serious complication in advanced sarcoidosis of the lungs, discuss the latest research on SAF screening and diagnosis and management. This is the Sark Fighter podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome to the Sark Fighter Podcast. I'm your host, John Carlin. If you're listening to this podcast, you are a Sark Fighter. Either you're fighting it in your body or you're helping someone who is in one way or another. Today, it's my privilege to present to you the panel discussion on SAF, sarcoidosis-associated pulmonary hypertension. This condition leaves patients breathless and occurs in up to 5 to 15% of patients. This meeting was sponsored and made possible through funding support by Bayer. The panel members include Dr. Robert Boffman, internist at the University of Cincinnati with specialties in pulmonary diseases, lung disease, also Professor Athel Wells, consultant and chest physician based at Royal Brompton Hospital, Professor Mark Umder, head of the Pulmonology and Intensive Respiratory Care Department at the University of Paris, and Dr. Stephen Nathan, Director of the Advanced Lung Disease Program and Director of the Lung Transplant Program at Inova Fairfax Hospital in Northern Virginia outside Washington, D.C. In this bonus episode, Dr. Robert Boffman moderates the panel discussion recorded in Madrid, Spain during a meeting of the European Respiratory Society, or ERS, as they discuss various aspects of SAF screening, diagnosis, and management. This meeting was sponsored and made possible again through funding support by Bayer. For more information, you can visit FSR's website or look for links in the show notes of the Sark Fighter podcast. Now, before listening to the panel, let me just say that this discussion is very clinical and it takes place at a level that may be beyond the scope of the average listener, but it will be extremely valuable to physicians and researchers working to combat SAF. Here now is the panel discussion moderated by Dr. Boffman. Welcome. I want to thank you all for listening to this, and I want to introduce the panel that we're having to speak today about sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension. Point out that all four of the people on the panel have been instrumental in the statement that we're developing regarding the diagnosis and management of sarcoid pulmonary hypertension. I'm Dr. Robert Boffman. I'm from the University of Cincinnati. I run a general pulmonary and extra-pulmonary sarcoidosis clinic at the University of Cincinnati. I'm Dr. Stephen Nathan. I'm out of Inova Fairfax Hospital, which is in Falls Church, Virginia, where I'm the medical director of the Advanced Lung Disease and Lung Transplant Program. Pleasure being here. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure for me also, Apple Wells. I work at the Brompton Hospital in London with a very large population of patients with sarcoidosis, both with advanced lung disease and with other major organ involvement. It's a great pleasure to be here to, today, too. Uh, I am Marc Cambert. I am a pulmonologist from the University of South Paris. Uh, I have um, a very strong interest in pulmonary hypertension, and I'm the chair of the French uh, Pulmonary Hypertension Network. First of all, I want to thank you all for listening to this. 
This is a, a summary of a statement on sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension being directed by the World Association of Sarcoid and Other Granulomatous Diseases, WASOC, and the Feder uh, Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, the FSR. I'd like to thank the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research and Bayer Pharmaceuticals for providing support and an unrestricted grant for this roundtable that we're going to have. Before I get started, I would like to point out that the sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension is a very important problem for patients with advanced sarcoidosis. The overall frequency of sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension has been reported somewhere between 5 to 20 percent. I'd like to ask the people on the panel about the frequency within their own clinic, starting off with Dr. Steve Nathan. Thanks, Bob. It's a pleasure being part of this. And uh, as you said, I agree that sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension is a big problem. We, we have a somewhat biased population in that we're a transplant center, so most of the sarcoid patients we see are within the window or close to being within the window in terms of needing a, a lung transplant. Um, so actually most of our sarcoid patients end up getting a right heart cath for that very reason. And when we look at it in our own population, um, we, we looked at it in the context of uh, abstracts papers previously, and it was around 50-60%. But when we look at it, uh, we did actually a paper that you're more familiar with than I am at this point in terms of looking at the UNOS database and listed patients uh, with sarcoidosis and the, the prevalence of sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension was closer to 70-75%. So I think as the disease advances and as these patients get to the point that they need transplant, it seems like it's almost inevitable that most of them will develop some sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension. Thank you. Ethel, what about your experience? Well, it's not a transplant population that I deal with, but it is a population with quite a lot of advanced lung disease. And so very much in keeping with your experience, um, we don't have the high prevalence you have. We don't have a, a so selected a population of very advanced disease, but we have fairly advanced disease. And I think our experience fits in very much with some of the series that if there's chronic exertional dyspnea, you're looking at a prevalence somewhere between 30 and 45 percent. And if that is not the case at presentation, we often see patients evolving to pulmonary hypertension during follow-up if they have exertional dyspnea at presentation. Uh, we're missing out, of course, in selecting advanced lung disease in a fairly large group of patients with sarcoid who actually don't have major interstitial lung disease but have pulmonary hypertension. And in our population, of course, that's very much lower because of our selection for lung disease. But we do have, from time to time, patients without major lung disease who present with pulmonary hypertension. So they come to you because they have breathlessness, a, a severe dyspnea. Yes, and sometimes there's a suspicion of cardiac sarcoidosis because they have breathlessness without major lung disease. And it turns out that what they have is pulmonary hypertension. Well, let's turn over to you. What about your experience with your big population? Well, our population's a bit different since it's more of a general pulmonary and general sarcoid clinic. Uh, we have patients with various manifestations that we treat. And yet, even in that situation, approximately 10% of our patients will, at the end of the day, have evidence for sarcoid-associated pul pulmonary hypertension. 
And it's a patient who we have with persistent shortness of breath that we've studied intensely in the past, done right heart catheterizations, and find that about half of those patients will have pulmonary hypertension. <clears throat> we also have a registry for sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension. And Ashley, you were part of the analysis team about what happened to those patients with the sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension. You want to summarize what uh, Vasilis and Oxana have come up with? Well, yes. I think we're talking here about survival as against various measures at presentation. And I think the predictor that impressed me the most was the six-minute walk data broadly, um, illustrating the importance of that. You want to summarize what you saw then? Um, Well, essentially we had bands of survival according to the six-minute walk distance. But I think that one of the things that came out was that the survival of those less than 300 meters was significantly worse than those that had a six-minute walk or greater than 300 meters. Now, how does that translate in the transplant literature, Steve? Um, I think that, you know, it, it correlates with what we see. By the time we transplant most of our sarcoid patients, they're well below 300. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so that, that's a, a pretty consistent finding. I think one of the other things, and correct me if I'm wrong from that paper, is that there is a graded response in terms of the level of severity of pulmonary hypertension so that uh, once the mean gets above 35, those patients have distinctly worse outcomes um, in terms of uh, mortality and otherwise. And I guess that will go into the discussion about who to treat and when to treat in terms of trying to impact their clinical course. But, but focusing a bit on the, the six-minute walk, uh, we've done some studies in six-minute walk in the general sarcoid population that we see that other things can affect the six-minute walk. But if, you, if you're looking at your patient who you're pretty convinced that their limitation is less than 300 meters, should that be a red flag that they should oh, be? I, I think it certainly should be. And just to pick up on your point on the 300-meter threshold, to what extent that reflects the severity of pulmonary hypertension, to what extent it, it reflects the fact that you have concurrent interstitial lung disease adding to the burden of disease isn't clear. But whatever you think about that, I think that threshold gave that very clear message that the six-minute walk test is one of the key variables that should make you think about pulmonary hypertension. What about the limitations of desaturation in this population, Steve? You, you point out that uh, you, if you're going to look at the desaturation product, you have to be done on room air. Is that the case, you think? Well, in an issue when we described the distance saturation product, uh, because of the confound of being on oxygen, we just took patients on room air. Now, whether that performs the same in patients on oxygen, I think, uh, is unknown. I, th- I think, you know, the, there's a lot of um, good and bad about the six-minute walk. It's, uh, you know, a lot of people are down on the six-minute walk in terms of its prognostic implications and how to do it and how to use it. But I think there's a lot of valuable information, and I think we need to look beyond the distance, and certainly the DSP is the first shot across the bow, so to speak, in terms of trying to incorporate uh, desaturation with distance. But I think we can go even further than that, to be quite honest, with the six-minute walk, not only in sarcoid but other diseases, looking at how much oxygen they walked on, uh, looking at their Borg score, pulse rate recovery. So I think there's still a lot of room to improve how we do and look at the six-minute walk. And I think we can take into account in an individual patient how much interstitial lung disease is there. So a six-minute walk 
TISP, though 300, um, is going to be more powerful in the patient who doesn't have very much interstitial lung disease, whereas if yeah. there's major interstitial <coughs> lung disease, it's a little more difficult to interpret. But th that shouldn't hold you back because, oh, no, 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 because about half not. the patients will have No, in fact it's in that situation where it's less clear that additional evidence of having or not having pulmonary hypertension becomes even more important in a way. Yeah. Well, we, we had discussed this at some length oh, a little bit last night and um, I think one of you made the point that generally when they develop advanced fibrosis it's not that progressive. And, That's right. Uh, yeah. And it's the pulmonary hypertension that can be more progressive. And yeah. I think some of the value of the six-minute walk, and we've seen this in other diseases, is uh, serial uh, decrement in the six-minute walk. Because if you have the two, the fibrosis and the pulmonary hypertension, and your six-minute walk st starts going down, I think that's more likely to be due to progression of the pulmonary hypertension rather than the progression of the fibrosis. Yes, especially, of course, if the lung function stays stay stable. Stay stable. Yep. Absolutely. I've, I've always felt that uh, one of the unique things about sarcoid versus other interstitial lung diseases is that we're usually able to turn off the inflammation. There's arguments about what drug, but for the most part, we can kind of control the inflammation once it's become apparent and once it's starting to be inflammatory. So as the patient's getting worse, you should start looking for an alternative cause, such as pulmonary hypertension. So, Athel, that leads into... When do we think we should be starting to think about suspecting pulmonary hypertension and what real testing should we do before or with the echocardiogram? Well, sometimes we are evaluating breathlessness without necessarily having lung disease and we don't have other tests. Sometimes we have tests performed because of the presence of lung disease. So whether you have these tests already or whether in fact you don't, there are certain ancillary tests, tests that tell us that pulmonary hypertension is more likely. You've mentioned one key test, the six-minute walk test, and essentially you're deciding when should an echocardiogram be done. Uh, if you suspect pulmonary hypertension, you will do one anyway. But you will also consider some other tests. For example, there are certain lung function profiles that tell you that pulmonary hypertension is more likely. And here you focus on the gas transfer. A very low gas transfer in its own right, I think, merits looking to exclude pulmonary hypertension. But that's especially the case if the gas transfer is very low and out of keeping with the lung disease that is present in the background. And you may pick up on this simply because you have a low gas transfer and you don't really have evidence of major disease in the lungs. Or you may have significant disease in the lungs, but the gas transfer is very much lower than it should be, measured against lung volumes, simple spirometric volumes. So you have the lung function profile. And then if you have disproportionately low oxygen levels, and that might be at rest. So if you have, for example, lung disease that appears to be moderately severe, but the oxygen level is very low, again, you should think about pulmonary hypertension. Now, another test that is very commonly available is the CT scan. And I think we have a great deal of support for the view that if you see an enlarged pulmonary artery, 
you should be thinking very hard about pulmonary hypertension, and this tends to be standardised against the aorta, but I think a large pulmonary artery anyway, uh, if it has major enlargement, is a very good reason to go looking for pulmonary hypertension. Now, sometimes there will be a blood test that tells you you should think about this, and serum BMP levels, in some occasions, in some settings, are done fairly routinely, and you may come across a high level which isn't explained, and you will be thinking about either pulmonary hypertension or cardiac involvement. But if you're already thinking about pulmonary hypertension, measuring that test may be very helpful in changing your views on the likelihood. So just to sum up, really, you're looking at breathlessness that is disproportionate, perhaps in a setting of lung disease, but sometimes not. You're thinking about the lung function tests and disproportionately low oxygen levels, perhaps at rest, perhaps on exertion. You're thinking about the size of the pulmonary artery on a CT scan, and you're taking aboard uh, a serum BMP level if it is available, and then you will perform an echocardiogram at that stage and you will integrate these tests and from this you will then have a view as to how you should proceed. Dr. Hebert, I'd like you to summarize the experience in your clinic of how often you see sarcoid patients with pulmonary hypertension. We've, we've had other people on the panel describe what they see in their own clinic, not just the general but specifically what you see. Yeah, no, it's a very important point. Uh, France is interesting for uh, conditions like pulmonary hypertension and sarcoidosis because you have uh, designated centers and you have referral centers uh, which are in charge of uh, management of some so-called rare diseases. For sarcoidosis, there was some debate about the rarity, but uh, for pulmonary hypertension, there is no doubt that it's not common. And uh, the bias we have, of course, is that when a patient is referred to my clinic, it's very likely that pulmonary hypertension has been already uh, either suspected or identified. So in my center, I would say that we have, of course, a responsibility which is local in the South Paris area. And in those patients, I would say that pulmonary hypertension is less common, maybe around one in five. But the external referrals are uh, mostly pulmonary hypertension. So uh, in our center, we have not only a lot of patients with sarcoidosis and comorbid pulmonary hypertension, but they are all part of a national registry uh, from which we can uh, elaborate hypotheses and um, data. Thank you. Well, along those lines, we talked a little bit earlier about what the outcome of patients in survival from our registry for sarcoidosis-associated pulmonary hypertension between the United States and parts of Europe. I wonder if you could summarize what you saw with the French registry that you published a couple of years ago now. Yeah, we published the, the data from the French registry in 2017, and um, clearly there was a focus on most severe pulmonary hypertension defined as either mean pulmonary artery pressure above 35 or more than 25 with a depressed cardiac output. Uh, in those patients, the, the outcome was not good uh, because we had a one-year survival around 93%, two year, um, three years, sorry, around 74, and five years around 55% uh, survival. So there is a clear unmet need in this population, and we have to work hard on them. I think everyone in the panel would agree that 
sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension is a significant severe problem for patients with sarcoidosis, and therefore uh, we'd like to try to identify them. Um, last night we came to a, a list of testing that we specifically feel that all patients who are being evaluated for sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension should be um, undergo. And Athol, I'd like you to try to summarize what that list is. Yes, yes, certainly uh, the pulmonary function tests, including gas transfer, arterial gases, uh, six-minute walk testing, examining both the six-minute walk distance but also desaturation during the six-minute walk test, CT scanning, taking aboard the size of the pulmonary artery, and uh, serum BMP, and then with this, echocardiography. I, yes. Well, one point I would make out is that arterial blood gassing was not something that we would agree with. Saturation. Saturation would be something that would be measured both yes. at rest and with exercise. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one of the things that struck me last night is that the, the almost unanimous opinion of the group was that BNP should be measured in anyone that you want to um, assess for sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension. How sensitive do you think that test is in an individual patient? Steve, do you have a sense for it? Um, actually, I don't. I would assume that it's pretty sensitive, but not very specific. I mean, you can have left-sided heart disease as a cause of the increased BMP or anti-pro-BMP. Um, but uh, we, we do use it. Uh, it's just another piece of information that we add to the puzzle. In, I think that the key with the testing, all the testing that Ethel mentioned, is to kind of layer these on top of one another and kind of come up with a, a pretest likelihood of the patient having pulmonary hypertension. So one parameter, if it's uh, really out of, you know, if you have a very large PA, for example, you're going to be very suspicious that this is uh, that there's underlying sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension. But sometimes it's a mildly enlarged PA and anti-pro-BMP that's mildly elevated and a DL that you know is maybe 35% or something like that. So I think the importance of those individual parameters is to look at them in concert and then make a decision as to the likelihood of, of pulmonary hypertension, and then going on to the next step, which would be an echocardiogram. But I, I think an important point around the echo is you can go in to, and have an echo, and your pretest likelihood is so high that even if the echo is unrevealing, you might still want to go ahead with the definitive study that we'll talk about. And I think another important point is you have to be careful where the echo is coming from, because it could be an echo from the outside, from a small institution that's not really focused on the RV, and they might ex ignore, quite honestly, some uh, indications of pulmonary hypertension. So not all echoes are the same. With that, I'd like to amplify that. Mark, would you talk about the new guidelines about how to assess pulmonary hypertension on echoes, not just RVESP anymore, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it's really important. And uh, clearly, um, echocardiography uh, has to be complete. And as Steve mentioned, uh, you have to speak with the guy who is doing the echocardiography before, because clearly if you don't put some emphasis on the right side of the heart, uh, some doctors will not uh, look at it perfectly. So the first thing we, we do consider is, of course, to try to measure the tricuspid regurgitation jet velocity. So this is a quite uh, simple measurement for most 
cardiologist, but it has to be well done and sometimes the envelope is not of good quality. So what I try to have is always a recording or a taping of the um, documentation of the measures. So this has to be done and based on the TRJ velocity, you can estimate the primary pressure. Very important to emphasize the on the word estimate because you need to properly define primary hypertension by right at CAS if it is estimated as elevated by echocardiography. Then this is not um, enough, of course, to measure TR jet velocity. You have to analyze in the setting of sarcoidosis very um, carefully the left side of the heart to see whether there is any uh, issue with its function, uh, the size of the left atrium, the quality of the ejection fraction of the left heart. And then you have uh, a few measures which are of g great interest, I would say, uh, that the size of the pulmonary artery, of course, um, the size of the right uh, chambers. And uh, we, we try to, to have also uh, an analysis on the speed, the acceleration time through the pulmonary valve. So it's a quite delicate measure, and that's the reason why it's so important to speak with the echocardiographer prior to the examination. Now, one of the questions, we in fact incorporated that in the Delphi that we used to build up towards the statement about using these other criteria. Do we know how well this applies in sarcoidosis? Should there be a concern that we haven't studied this delicate in sarcoid? No, it's a great comment. Uh, in sarcoid, we don't have enough data to be sure of that. Uh, but I think from the experience from many uh, expert centers like yours, uh, we know that uh, echocardiography is a good tool to screen, not a good tool to diagnose, but a good tool to screen. Something I didn't mention also is that echo provides you some information on the severity of the condition. And if you have um, a fluid in the pericardium, for example, uh, that's something you have to, to consider as a marker of uh, possible severity of primary hypertension. Thank you. Athol, I want to get back to one of the questions you were making about the reduced DLCO to force vital capacity. Most of that has come from the scleroderma literature. Again, do you think it's uh, valid to extrapolate what we know in scleroderma to patients with sarcoidosis, or do we think we should be more cautious about that? I can only say comparing large, I mean, this is down to clinician experience, exactly as Mark said about extrapolating with echo. And I can only really say that the pattern of lung function associated with pulmonary hypertension is broadly very, very similar between scleroderma and sarcoidosis, with the difference that in many sarcoid patients there's airflow obstruction. But apart from this, yes, major reductions in gas transfer out of proportion with volumes do provide guidance, but I also agree strongly with the view that this now needs to be examined more exactly in sarcoidosis. But I think we have enough there in terms of uniform experience to use this profile to change our perceived likelihood. Then this leads us up to Steve. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about your uh, prior UNOS data study. Mm -hmm. Athol pointed out that oxygen transfer and need for oxygen is also a marker for pulmonary hypertension, and what you found in patients uh, comparing those on the list with or without pulmonary hypertension in their oxygen requirements. 
Yeah, that's, uh, that's, we showed the, what Ethel alluded to is that those patients with pulmonary hypertension generally had significantly higher oxygen requirements. And so I think that's another very important clue to the presence and it goes along with what Ethel was saying about gas transfer. The more oxygen patient, patients require, the greater the likelihood that they're going to have pulmonary hypertension. So when you're assessing a patient for possible transplant, mm -hmm. how much is that going to, the DLCO and the oxygen requirements going to be part of your uh, equation when you're looking at the patient? Um, I think oxygen requirements in particular, you know, we, we talk about the window of opportunity for, for transplant and as soon as any patient, not only just sarcoid patients, require supplemental oxygen, they within that window. And, um, you know, the greater the, the oxygen requirements, the further along in the window they are. Many of these patients unfortunately get to the point where they're on so much supplemental oxygen that we just can't maintain them at home and they need to come into the hospital to, to wait it out until a transplant becomes available. So oxygen requirements are a big driver of outcomes and obviously a big impediment in terms of patient quality of life. Mark, I'm gonna take advantage of the fact that you're here and you're, um, you're part of the group that defined sarcoidosis as WHO group five. And could you rationalize why it's put there as opposed to say who group three? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a very uh, interesting and important uh, debate. Uh, clearly, the vast majority of patients with sarcoid associated pulmonary hypertension have lung disease, and even more so advanced lung disease, fibrosis, etc. However, a, a, a sizable uh, group of patients with sarcoidosis have other drivers of pulmonary hypertension. The most important one being post-capillary pulmonary hypertension with left heart failure. So, of course, um, sarcoid with uh, very advanced lung fibrosis uh, is very likely to be in the family of lung disease-associated pulmonary hypertension. You should be always very careful to analyze all the drivers of pulmonary hypertension. Is it pre-capillary? Is it post-capillary? And then if it is pre-capillary, so if the left heart works well, uh, is it due to a simple uh, lung destruction or is it due to compression of the main pulmonary arteries by mediastinitis or uh, lymph nodes? Uh, you also have some patients with chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, and this is very important because this is a treatable condition, and we, we can tell you that every year we do operate at least five patients with comorbid sarcoid and CTEF, and it would be very sad to miss this comorbidity. And um, last but not least, some patients with sarcoid have advanced liver disease with portal hypertension, and these are very similar to group one pulmonary artery hypertension. So uh, I, I value very much the debate we had in Nice at the Sixth World Symposium on pulmonary hypertension, but I was quite strong, and I sent personal messages to Steve, I was quite strong to maintain in, in group five because I think it's a good lesson to doctors and to carers. So I think you're also emphasizing that the diagnosis of precapillary pulmonary hypertension in sarcoidosis doesn't stop there, that you have to look at why they have it and the information. Would you add anything else to what was brought up um, for evaluation? We talked about things like the BNP and the chest CT scan. Should we do other testing to look for other possible causes routinely in patients with sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension? So 
if yes. the question is for me, so routinely, mm -hmm. uh, I think you have listed very well uh, what is really very important. Uh, we, we do sometimes perform PET scanning. Um, uh, I think it's, uh, it is useful, it is emerging, I would say. It's not uh, guideline supported yet, but PET scanning in permanent hypertension due to sarcoidosis may identify active uh, granulomatous disease in sections of the lung which may be treatable uh, with immunosuppression. So um, in, my, in my center, we, we always now uh, consider PET scanning in patients with sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension, especially if there is some kind of compression of the main uh, pulmonary artery, because in that case, the tissue is not purely fibrotic. It is active and responsive potentially to immunosuppression. We had we had some debate about this last night, Arthur. Well, yes, we did, and we also talked about MRI scanning, and I think we agreed that you would not routinely do that looking for pulmonary hypertension, but that you might have performed MRI scanning with a suspicion of cardiac sarcoidosis and then find ancillary signs, um, right ventricular, late gadolinium enhancement sometimes, but certainly right ventricular hypertrophy or impairment leading you to look for pulmonary hypertension. Uh, so there's this overlap when you have unexplained dyspnea and you are thinking both about cardiac disease and about pulmonary hypertension. And you might certainly be taking the cardiac tests aboard that you wouldn't otherwise routinely perform. Mark, um, let me ask you about something else. And you'd mentioned CTIP complicating sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension. And that brings up a whole different dimension of the workup. Do you routinely get VQ scans on all these patients? How do you pick up on CTIF? Because especially if you have extensive parenchymal lung disease, you can have a high probability VQ scan as well. No, it's a great question. So we, we are careful with CTIF because CTIF is treatable. So uh, we, we would not look for it if it was a diagnosis with no consequence. So what we do right now, and I will add also something on COPD, what you do right now, irrespective of the lung damage, we do a ventilation perfusion lung scan, which may be uh, inconclusive, of course, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's very sharply conclusive uh, with segmental defects, and this will give you an indication to watch carefully at the pulmonary vessels either with intravascular filling, CTF, or extravascular compression. So it's really uh, an internal medicine um, strategy which is extremely important to, to follow. In COPD, because it's not the same condition, but it's chronic lung disease, uh, we do look for CTF quite a lot because we know now from the international CTF registry that 10% of patients with treatable CTF have comorbid COPD. Sarcoidosis is rare as compared to COPD, but we, we do have, I would say, at least uh, three uh, patients uh, treated every year with real CTF and with cure of CTF with either surgery or balloon pulmonary angioplasty. So uh, I think your, your word of caution is well taken. Sometimes it's inconclusive, but ventilation perfusion lung scan is important. We actually didn't discuss this last night, but maybe we need to revisit this in terms of if patients have sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension, it's a good question, should they routinely get a VQ scan for that very reason? So you mentioned three to five cases per year. Is there a denominator? What, what percent of sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension do you think have evidence of 
chronic thromboembolic disease? Yeah, because we are a national center, we see um, all of the treatable uh, CTEF from my country, not all of them, because of course some are elderly with comorbidities, etc. But in my center, we see around 350 per year. So it would mean one person have, have <laughs> uh, sarcoidosis. Mm. But the low numbers, it's my job. <laughs> and I would say low numbers are very important for me. Well, I do think that it's important to realize, and many people don't, is that there's no question there's an increased risk for pulmonary embolism and deep venous thrombosis in sarcoidosis patients. So even if they're not CTEF, they may still have had recurrent pulmonary emboli as part of their where they got to having pulmonary hypertension. So I think that the VQ scan is something that may be part of the routine evaluation as well. I'd like to change to the, uh, we've talked about the echocardiogram. We've talked about the fact, and we talked a lot about this last night as well, that a patient who have an echocardiogram that's indeterminate or even normal, but if you have other risk factors, that you would move on to the right heart cath. So I'd like to emphasize the right heart cath and start off by having Mark explain what the new criteria are for right heart catheterization and pulmonary hypertension. Yeah, we'll try to be brief but clear. So um, we know the normal values of mean pulmonary artery pressure. So for a non-expert, we discuss mean pulmonary artery pressure. So we don't uh, discuss the same number than the one which is estimated by ECHO. So that's the first uh, uh, slight difficulty, but uh, when you know, you know. So we measure uh, mean PAP, which means that it is the systolic PAP plus twice the diastolic PAP divided by three. So that's the first point. The normal value uh, is usually 14 millimeter of mercury, and the standard deviation is three millimeter of mercury. So the upper limit of normal is usually in physiology defined by the mean plus twice the standard deviation. So the upper limit of normal, the cutoff, is 20. So any value strictly above 20 is abnormal. And this was a big drama of the World Symposium. We changed the definition. We didn't change the definition to increase the numbers. We changed the definition in order not to miss early vascular disease. And I think in sarcoidosis, like in CTEF, like in scleroderma, it's better to have an early diagnosis to consider early consideration for treatment and management. So the new definition is uh, mean PAP above 20 millimeter of mercury. And then you still keep pre and post capillary, and usually the wedge pressure is considered as clearly abnormal above 15. So we have pre-capillary hypertension with a wedge pressure less than 15, 15 or less, and post-capillary above 15. So the new definition is really important, but we have added something. We have added the pulmonary vascular resistance in order to determine the people who have increased pressure due to pulmonary vascular disease. So we consider that a pulmonary vascular disease is very likely when you have mean PAP above 20, wedge pressure below 15, and a pulmonary vascular resistance of three or more wood units. So it's a bit delicate. It requires a lot of expertise. But for multidisciplinary meetings, it's very good to have very strong basis. Thank you. Um, I think that what we have done in the past in our registry and your registry is that we have used the 25 and above. What do you think of the impact is going to be looking at 21 to 25 per year? 
It has an impact. It has an impact, but of course, your, your main driver to perform right at CAS is usually uh, symptoms, etc. So usually you have patients with um, more pronounced pulmonary vascular disease when there is a clinical suspicion. However, you have the patients who are considered for lung transplantation, and many are between 21 and 24. So the change increases the number of pulmonary hypertension proportion uh, of um, comorbid pulmonary hypertension. It's important for the surgeon, it's important for the post-transplant management, so it's always better to know that there is a flavor of pulmonary vascular disease when you take care of the patient after the transplantation. It doesn't mean that we have to treat these patients all, but it means that we have to carefully consider them as having a component involving the pulmonary arteries. So the numbers, I think we should do the study because you have done perfectly well the right at cath in your cohorts. So we should see what is the added number on top of the current numbers. So that should be done. Actually, we've looked at this and uh, I have a paper out there at the moment looking at the uh, UNOS registry. And if you think about this new de definition, it's going to affect lung disease probably the most out of all the different categories because group one PAH, they're usually well north of 2025 20, and PVRs much higher than three when they come to clinical attention. So what we did uh, in this paper and uh, hasn't been presented as yet is we looked at the UNOS registry of over 19,000 patients with right heart cath to see who qualified as pulmonary hypertension by the old definition versus the new definition. And we looked at sarcoid as a specific uh, group as actually very instructive, the overall prevalence of pulmonary hypertension did not change that much. But the patients who constituted pulmonary hypertension changed. So there are patients who came in who are 21 to 24 with PVRs of three or more, but there are also some patients who dropped out who are 25 and higher with PVRs less than three. So you actually gain some and lose some in overall prevalence, I think, from the UNOS registry for sarcoid-associated pH in our most recent look was around 60-61%. Um, when we, when we looked, and as I say, this hasn't been vetted or gone out for peer review as yet, we looked at outcomes based on the new versus old definition. And interestingly, sarcoid was the one group where it looked like the new definition discerned outcomes a little bit better than the old definition. All right, that's really interesting, and uh, I think we have to follow that. Your, your comment about the new definition, increasing and lowering numbers, that's really important because with the PVR added, yeah. uh, you, you, un you, you try to enrich the population with real pulmonary vascular disease. So you get rid of people with high cardiac output, uh, increase in pressure without pulmonary vascular disease. So I think it is very helpful. It's also going to potentially impact on a real problem that we have where you are convinced the patient has pulmonary hypertension, the echo may be pointing that way strongly and the ancillary tests are, but you do a right heart study and you don't manage to confirm that. And you're always very worried that pulmonary hypertension will develop, say, in the next year. So you must relax and follow the case, but it may be that this definition will partly deal with that problem. Do you I do. have a feel for that, actually? Do you feel that this is picking up on that group of patients which you could not have defined in the past completely, or do you think we'll still have the same problem? Yeah, no, I think <clears throat> it does increase the... Um, 
you, you have more conviction that there is a pulmonary vascular component mm. with a new definition. Yeah. The PVR above three is yeah. very meaningful. Yes. Mm. Pulmonary but hypertension, it's not only pressure. That's something important yes. to say. It's pressure yes. and flow. Yeah. And you can have high pressure because you exercise. I mean, right. when yeah. I run to this room, I'm sure my pressure was above 30, but my uh, resistance was low because you, you, you open new vessels, etc. So resistance, it's not a detail. It's very important. I think this is important. In the, uh, reg our registry, we did include a group of patients that had higher pressures with low, high cardiac output, and so therefore the PVR. And it represented about 10 to 15% of patients just off the top of my head. So I think that um, <coughs> this is probably going to change how we think about it, and it's going to lead into one of the questions about therapy. I want to go back to your statement about the role of PET scanning in assessing pulmonary hypertension uh, patients. I have to say that um, at our institution, we're pretty aggressive about treating with anti-inflammatory therapies. In fact, my usual rule is that they have to be treated with lots of drugs before we think about pH, usually, because we've already been going down that pathway. And I'm impressed that the PET scan may be useful for mediastinal disease and perhaps reversible pulmonary hypertension, but I've never been impressed that treating parenchymal lung disease changes the pulmonary artery pressures. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but um, as I said before, my job is to take care of outliers. Right. <laughs> and I have sometimes people with a nodular disease, which is very widespread, infiltrating the veins also with a right. post-capillary component. And these very few patients, uh, they, they have an uptake in their lungs. But of course, they are outliers. If you take 100, maybe it's one or two. Uh, my job is always one or two out of 100. But these patients, they respond to therapy. You could also consider that the CT scan is sufficiently uh, informative because you have this micro, micro, micronodular disease, mm. uh, which means something, I think, for, for clinicians. For the mediastinal disease, I fully agree that's more important uh, and more convincing sometimes. Well, well there, go ahead. you are also going to be driven, even if you don't, reverse interstitial lung disease, if you have pulmonary hypertension, any progression of ILD is going to add to the burden. Yeah. And so you are going to be committed to taking quite vigorous steps to prevent progression of disease. Uh, whether that means, though, you would always treat with high dose is another question. So in our centre, we very much have a sense of lung protection therapy when you have pulmonary hypertension, you have a reversible disease. And I'm not sure that we felt comfortable using PET to say that we should not have protective therapy for the lungs. I think there's, there's, there's a nuance here, that is, yeah. which is that you're talking about lung protective versus reversible. Yes. Um, and... But one of, the, and one of the discussions we had last night was, should patients with pulmonary hypertension be treated first for their inflammatory lung disease and then for their pulmonary hypertension, where I think the majority of the people in the room said that those should be done in parallel, that they should be assumed that their treatment for their interstitial lung disease, which we have several drugs and well-defined criteria, should be done at the same time if they have pulmonary hypertension that is an indication for therapy, and we'll talk about that in a minute, they should be treated at the same time. And would you agree with that, Arch? 
We have the same approach in patients with connective tissue disease like systemic lupus erythematosus, and I would say it echoes exactly what we do. Uh, in fact, we add to this um, uh, thinking, we add also the severity of the primary vascular disease. Um, when there is a severe primary vascular disease, uh, which requires both pH treatment and um, immunosuppressive, we combine. I mean, we do exactly what you said. When the pulmonary vascular disease is a little bit less advanced, we may consider sequential, uh, but uh, there is no data to indicate whether sequential is better. But we have, uh, once again, a number of patients who do respond well to um, isolated immunosuppressant, and they are most likely to, to be very early disease like uh, mean PAP24, PVR 3.4, and uh, some kind of uh, micronodular and fibrotic disease. In those people, usually we consider that the clock is running, of course, but you may have some time. But you have to f carefully follow these patients, because some patients have a fast evolution. I'd like to now shift to therapy. And uh, first, by starting off about um, who should be treated, and then we'll talk a little bit about wh what we should think consider about being treated for a specific therapy. And we had discussion last night by separating patients with mild disease to moderate severe disease, and the cutoff being the mean PA pressure of 35. We didn't talk about PBR. Uh, your, your report was entirely on patients that had moderate to severe disease. So, um, do you consider patients with mild disease an indication for therapy? Yeah, we, we just addressed that a little bit. Um, mild disease is a warning, um, but uh, you, you may have time to intervene on all the components, all the comorbid components, which may influence uh, the pressure. I don't say you have to wait for very, very advanced disease because that's a mistake, I think, in primary hypertension to wait for problems. But uh, I would say when the disease is very early, uh, we have very little data first in, in sarcoidosis in very early disease. And second, um, I still consider that uh, immunosuppression uh, is still of interest. And as I said, look carefully for all the causes like compression of the vessel. I'm, I'm always very fanatic with compression of the vessel, but we see quite a lot in my center, and uh, maybe it's a little bit uh, the bias we have. <laughs> um, regarding uh, your, your question about uh, treatment, uh, I would say in moderate to severe, no debate. I think worldwide, when you look at the registries, very few people don't treat. And this is the beauty of the classification. If you were in group three, it would be much more uh, difficult to support treatment because there is a clear contraindication for treatment with pH drugs in group three primary hypertension, while the beauty of group five is that everything is possible because it is multidimensional, and you can say that there is a, there is a flavor of uh, pulmonary vascular disease of group one, which is uh, of great interest with the treatment. Scleroderma is always opposed to me when we say we put scleroderma in group one, why not putting sarcoidosis in group three? But scleroderma, the primary vascular component, is obvious. And we have patients with no fibrosis whatsoever and very severe pulmonary hypertension. We also have very clear-cut pulmonary veno-occlusive disease. So I think for the sake of the protection of the sarcoidosis patients and the community, I think group five protects you a lot and you are allowed to give the group one pH drugs because group five is diverse. 
So that's uh, please. That's I'm, I'm the lawyer <laughs> gonna, for myself. We're going to revisit <laughs> the debate we had at the World Symposium, but uh, I'm not sure. You know, I agree that there have been some studies that have suggested don't treat group three, but I think the jury's still very much out. There are ongoing studies. There's data in COPD that it might work, and there are ongoing studies in ILD in group three. So. Yeah. Uh, I haven't given up on that yet, yeah. and uh, but it, you gave us an easy out. If you want to treat, just move from group three to group five, mm -hmm. and then you can. Honestly, treat. it's a good recommendation for experts. Yeah, uh, okay. and you are in group five, but one day maybe, it, it's good. I mean, if we focus on treatment, uh, we have data now from the registries, which are very, uh, very interesting. I would say they are not as clear as in group one. Clearly, the patients are not the same. You, you may have uh, uh, some other factors. But treating is likely to be a good idea, but it should be done in, I would say, expert centers, as always, for pulmonary, uh, rare pulmonary disease. And second, the monitoring uh, should be done properly, and you need to treat to go, so you need to have a strategy. And, uh, of course, you, you need to consider also the, the few patients who will deteriorate on treatment in order not to push too much if there is a hypoxia which uh, is um, increased or if the patients do not uh, go to the right direction. So um, always good to remember that uh, when you treat, you follow up and you have a strategy. Okay, I'd, I'd like to come back to this specific recommendation of patients with mild to moderate pulmonary hypertension uh, should be handled on a case-by-case -case basis, which was a recommendation that we made last night. Athel, do you want to talk about that? Yes, yes, very much, because what came out last night was the spectrum of view of this, depending upon how much interstitial lung disease there was, and a strong feeling that it was very difficult to generalize to provide a very bust recommendation that could not be individualized. So it's really another way of saying what you have just said, that you need a certain expertise brought into place in making that judgment. And case-by-case -case judgments are probably our best way of summarizing what we should recommend. Yeah, I fully agree. And uh, yeah. I would add on that that multidisciplinary meeting is mandatory. Uh, we need to have a group of people sharing the decision because it's so sometimes difficult. So expertise and group expertise also, the, the Brompton, your institutes, my institute, we, we usually consider that these patients have to be discussed in a multidisciplinary meeting and they have to be discussed a priori and after treatment. So that's really important and it will fill the registries with more data and information. I, I would agree that one of the group comment was about the concept of having a multidisciplinary discussion uh, doesn't necessarily have to be a formal meeting, but it really should be that these patients, once they're on therapy, should be in the consultation of not only a pH expert, but also a sarcoidosis expert, and that you probably shouldn't work either one in isolation. Um, Steve, I wanted to get back to the patients with more severe, so the moderately to severe pH. Yeah. We selected last night that those patients with restrict, moderately severe restriction and the vital capacity, say for example, of less than 50%, whether those patients should be treated with uh, specific therapy for their pulmonary hypertension? That's a good question. And uh, I think as we spoke about it last night, we kind of try to nuance the statement that we would come up with in the context of, of what we would say. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, 
basically what we said is after careful consideration of the degree of um, parenchymal lung disease, uh, and you could say CT burden or uh, PFTs, FVC less than 50%, after careful consideration of the degree of parenchymal lung uh, disease burden, we provided a conditional recommendation that all patients, I can't remember how we knew us, it should be treated, should be considered for treatment, Ethel had a problem with considered, and so there was a lot of wordsmithing around this, but I think there was general consensus that patients with moderate to severe pulmonary hypertension should be treated. But we wanted to make sure that there was uh, recognition of the degree of parenchymal lung disease burden. And in the end, we actually decided to make two recommendations, one for those with patients with a major ILD burden and one for those without as a way of getting around this because otherwise you're starting with that large caveat in a single recommendation. So we really felt that the two contexts were so different that that was required. That's why, I think. Yeah. I think that the question of major ILD burden was something that we could not really resolve well last night. But in point of fact, the reality is that the clinical trials that are now going on, and most of the ones that have been in the past, have used vital capacity of 50% as the cutoff. So we're simply not in studying patients with vital capacity less than 50%. And so I, would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, I think the data are there. So uh, that's a, a cutoff. But uh, I think there is room also for debate, maybe for a posteriori analysis of different cutoffs, yeah. uh, because 50 is quite major. Right. Uh, so um, you, you have a lot of data in your registry, I think. Yeah, well, the other issue with 50 is we never ever know where an individual patient started. So right. if they happen to start at 80, yeah. they've lost less than half of their FVC. If they start at 120, they've yeah. lost a devastating amount. And we never know that. Yeah. So these, these very rigid thresholds in isolation can't be absolutely the best way of doing this. Yeah, that's an excellent I, I comment, agree. yeah. I think that, you know, one of the concepts we didn't talk about last night, but this is where it's, you've got to take into account the lung disease and the hemodynamic profile, is the concept of a rolling threshold to treat. So, for example, if someone has an FBC of 80% um, and their uh, MPAP is 28 or 30 with a PBR of 3.5, I would probably treat a patient like that. Um, but I wouldn't treat that patient if the FEC was 45%. However, if a patient's FEC was 45%, MPAP was 45 and PBR was 8 or 10, I would treat. So it goes to the concept of a term we don't like to use, but disproportionate. We all feel like we can recognize it when we see it, but it's hard to actually define what is disproportionate in the context of parenchymal lung disease. And in fact, uh, something important to, to consider, and you have insisted on that, that's also the imaging component. Yes, yes because uh, FVC at 50% doesn't mean the same when you have distracted lungs or less important and emphysema also. Yeah. Yes, yes, I think both of those things are crucial. And to make this point about the artificial nature of the threshold where you don't know where you start, if you don't have pulmonary hypertension, you're going to use exercise tolerance to adjust how severe the disease is. Of course, you can't do that now that you have exercise tolerance. So rapid assessment of CT extent, even though we don't have an exact threshold, will often make it clear that an FVC of 50% in an individual actually isn't as bad as you think it is. Probably they did start at 80% because the amount of interstitial disease is 
moderate rather than extensive. Yeah. You can't be ultra exact, but I think you do get a better sense of that cut-off mm -hmm. case by case. And that is why I think you do have to use a case-by-case -case evaluation. Mm -hmm. It's part of that. You think the patient has severe ILD. Again, the multidisciplinary approach comes in, but you will use your judgment on how bad the ILD is once you have the threshold. You may decide the threshold's misleading you. So I'd like to summarize before... Uh, no, about the, the imaging point, I'd like Athel to kind of give a cutoff. This 20% forced vital, 20% uh, fibrosis on HRCT seems to be something that has been a good predictor. We found it as a predictor for mortality in sarcoid, you have found it as well. Dominic and, uh, has also found it in the France group. So where did we come up with the 20%? Well, I can speak for our experience. We simply scored the scans. We had a large cohort. We were examining mortality, and we had 250 patients where in the derivation cohort we found the best threshold and we tested it, and it stood up to scrutiny. It also happens to match fairly consistent data in scleroderma. So it does seem that once you get to a certain threshold of interstitial lung disease fibrosis, 20% of the lung, there seems to be a tendency for fibrosis to beget fibrosis, even if you treat. And this seems to be um, echoed in scleroderma. And, and then I, I know that others have then found, and, and you've mentioned your own data, perhaps I could pass this back to you at this point. Well, one of the reasons I like the 20% is that your original paper on this in scleroderma pointed out that the pulmonologist and the radiologist had actually very good agreement. Yeah. And yeah. it was so therefore it's a very practical test. Well it is. You can't have a threshold of 27.31% and <laughs> expect the radiologist to make a useful observation at that point. And, I'm, I, and although caliper has been useful for IPF, I think in the day-to-day -day practice, waiting for computerized algorithms to help decide the extent of fibrosis is probably not going to be helpful no, in the data No, they've been talking about that for 10 years, haven't they? The right. idea that in the near future there will be automated techniques available. I can't say I've seen any uptake on that. So I think that uh, the, one of the things that we should take away here is that if you're assessing patients for and this has been brought up by different directions here, that assessing the degree of interstitial lung disease, that an HRCT in the presence or absence of 20% fibrosis is useful. Mm. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a contraindication to therapy that they, if they have more than 20%, mm. but it's one more factor to make you think about the lung disease versus the pH. Yeah, well, look, let's just broaden that a little in that case. So it's not a contraindication to therapy, and... We feel differently, don't we, in sarcoid, where you have a very good chance the interstitial lung disease will be held in check, whereas in IPF, for example, with more extensive disease, you also have the concern that the ILD will progress as well. Um, so that in itself nuances what we feel about the amount of interstitial lung disease. In sarcoidosis, you have a much better chance that your outcome from the ILD will be good. So, passing this, what do you feel about this? Yeah, no, I agree fully, and uh, we have also uh, 
uh, a lot of expertise in scleroderma, you mentioned it too. Uh, in scleroderma, your 20% approach is extremely performing well. So I, I, I'm very happy with, with that tool to help me uh, make decision. Uh, in sarcoid, I agree, we use the same. I mean, we follow your advice. And uh, as you say, there is more room for improvement or stabilization in sarcoid as compared to um, IPF or even uh, scleroderma. Yeah. yeah. So um, I want to get back to echo cardiogram as a screening tool. And in our experience, one of the things that's missed, people have been missed for their pulmonary hypertension is because I've been told, well, their echo is normal. And, um, and so how often will that observation of an abnormal, I mean, a normal echo or maybe a borderline echo and the patient actually have significant pulmonary hypertension. How often do you see it? What does that mean to you? Yeah, the, the first challenge is what is normal. <laughs> so was it done perf perfectly well or was it done quickly? So that's uh, something I, I always take uh, care of. So normal, uh, I need data. I need uh, everything. And usually uh, when I read it, uh, there were a lot of missing information. Mm -hmm. The size of the heart, mm -hmm. the, um, the TR chat velocity was not properly um, measured. You have to bear in mind also that the tricuspid regurgitation jet is not always measurable. So uh, it's not because it's not measured that it's not that it is normal. So that's something very important. And in the report, when you ask for pulmonary hypertension screening, if there is no jet measured, it doesn't mean that there is no pulmonary hypertension. It means that you have no uh, indication that uh, you can estimate the pressure. So uh, another thing I, I always consider in these so-called normal um, measures is what was exactly the, the, the level of pressure elevation. You have some patients, especially with a new definition, with marginal elevation of pulmonary pressure, and they may have near-normal uh, measurements. So in those people, and you, you emphasize that, uh, you, 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 make, you made an emphasis on that, uh, if you have unexplained shortness of breath, nothing is abnormal. Your, your lung function, your uh, assessment does not explain at all uh, why uh, the patient is short of breath. I would go to right at cath even if uh, the, the echo is not uh, conclusive. I think uh, an important practical point is, and especially if you're in a, a referral center like we are, patients will come in with an echo having been done three months ago, six months ago, and we actually looked at this in the context of IPF together with the folks at UCLA, and it turned out all of our patients ultimately got right heart cath, but it was about 30% of them with documented pH on right heart cath had no mention of pH or anything on their prior echo, some of these having been done in the community. So I think that's a word of caution as well. Of course, at the expert centers, there's a tremendous focus on the right side of the heart, so more likely to have a positive yield. But to my point that I made earlier, it depends who's doing the echo and where it's being done as well. If I may, just that thing, because uh, that's really interesting. Um, of course, you have a multi-parametric assessment, so you see echo in the setting of the clinical assessment, the BNP and the DLCO. I think that's really important. But also, um, you have to learn from other conditions. For example, familial pulmonary hypertension. We have a lot of um, uh, caution about the relatives of uh, patients with familial pulmonary artery hypertension. And now, in my center, we do systematic screening. Screening means 
pre-symptomatic, so no symptoms whatsoever. And I can share with you that uh, out of uh, um, 50 people with uh, uh, a familial condition uh, without pulmonary hypertension themselves, uh, echo was normal in two with an abnormal right at cath. So uh, echo can be regarded as normal even in an expert center when there is very early disease. So the degree of clinical suspicion is very important in your, in your decision. Yeah. The other thing that we talked about last night that I found striking was the use of the CTPA assessment of the size of the right ventricle as an indicator of pulmonary hypertension. So RV enlargement, evidence for regurgitation into like the IVC and stuff like that. And do you find that as a useful standardized test? Yeah, standardized, it's difficult to say because you need to ECG gate your uh, right heart chambers. So usually in the community, uh, you don't know if it was measured in systole or in diastole. So you can have a difference in size when the pump is pumping. But when it is large, usually it's large both in systole and diastole. You can, you can see that on the CT scan. Of course, during the echo, you measure the right heart chambers, and this is a very important parameter also. You also measure the left atrium. I always uh, insist on that. So the right heart chamber, like the trunk, the size of the pulmonary artery trunk, these are informative. They, they are not conclusive, but it enriches the likelihood to have uh, a pulmonary hypertension behind the symptoms. Well, it's one of the tests that's commonly done in the United States. If you have chest pain in the emergency room, you get a, almost always get a CTPA. So we often get that piece of information, and what was pointed out was that if you have that information, that should lead you on to think about getting pulmonary hypertension evaluation. So uh, that's one of the things that comes up. Steve, can you go back uh, about interstitial lung disease? You've done a fair amount with uh, looking for pH in the IPF population. Mm -hmm. what, are the echo, what are the lessons that you've learned in that situation that can apply to patients with sarcoidosis? Um, I think... That, um, that's a good question. I have to think a little bit about it. I, I look at them both quite similarly in, in terms of clinical suspicion for pH. And certainly, uh, we had mentioned it earlier, but if they desaturate more, if they're requiring oxygen, if they walk less, if their lung function is well-maintained and, and they have deterioration either in their symptoms or their walk distance, and especially their symptoms, the patients will, will tell you that they're getting worse, they're feeling worse, and you look at their lung function and it's you know, pretty much the same. Those situations, we actually send them for a CT angiogram. We want to make sure that they don't have a thromboembolic event. But um, that's when I really start to get suspicious that they might have superimposed pulmonary hypertension. So I think, as Mark mentioned, you draw lessons from one disease versus and apply to the next disease. So I think there are a lot of similarities between IPF and sarcoidosis, especially with regards to pulmonary hypertension. Although I will say that the pH of sarcoid tends to be more moderate to severe versus IPF, it tends to be more mild to moderate. And I think that that's what makes sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension a, a more attractive target for therapy with the agents that we have available versus IPF. So Mark, would you get back to the concept of the difference between an IPF patient with pulmonary hypertension and a sarcoid patient with pulmonary hypertension? What do you think about their prognosis and your enthusiasm about treating them? Yeah, no, it's an uh, important uh, comment to make. So in uh, interstitial lung disease and in IPF, uh, it's a very important prognostic factor. Uh, but the uh, measure of pulmonary pressure is not always very high. So 
that's what we, we discussed with, with Steve, uh, you may have mild to moderate pulmonary hypertension, and uh, uh, there are some, uh, some data from uh, randomized controlled trials where there was systematic uh, uh, right at CAS, uh, for example, with the Umbrizenton study. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's quite interesting to see that there is a number of patients with mild pulmonary hypertension, and the progression is rather uh, slow. I mean, it doesn't jump from 20 to 50 within six months or one year. So in ILD, in IPF, most importantly, it is a prognostic marker. But I'm not sure it is a treatment uh, target because it's more a reflection of the severity of the pulmonary vascular disease. Of course, once again, you have outliers. You have patients with a mean PAP of 50 with depressed cardiac output, but these patients are not the majority. In sarcoidosis, um, as Steve alluded to, uh, the patients are more moderate to severe, and uh, especially in a referral center like my center, uh, the proportion of patients with a mean PAP above 35 is much more important in sarcoid as compared to IPF or uh, COPD. So we really have an enrichment in patients with more severe disease, and uh, that's the reason why we are so interested by, by this condition. and. Uh, as a treatability, I don't know if you say that in English, but whether you can treat uh, this, uh, this component. Okay. I mean, I think that one of the things that I try to emphasize to people when I talk about this is that I think that sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension is not so much like IPF pulmonary hypertension as it is like scleroderma pulmonary hypertension, and that you should think more about what you would do if that patient had scleroderma in front of you rather than if they had IPF. Would you buy that? Uh, I buy. Steve? Well, it's actually interesting as you're saying that. I'm thinking, well, maybe there's a spectrum. IPF is uh, certainly more mild to moderate than sarcoids, more moderate to severe. And I see scleroderma as you can have pretty severe PA. So maybe it's a spectrum right across. And I'd put sarcoids somewhere between scleroderma and mm -hmm. IPF. And scleroderma is a, is a vascular disease. Yeah. It's a vascular disease, and it's not only pulmonary, it's systemic. And uh, these patients, they have more dramatic outcomes. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think one of the major limitations that we have yet to, to sort out, and you keep alluding to, is the fact is that sarcoid patients can have both the vasculopathy as well as the fibrosis. And we don't, to date, have a really good marker for which is the vasculopathy. So I guess that raises the question, can you use the response to therapy as a marker for whether they have a vasculopathy? It could be considered as um, as a possibility, uh, because indeed with um, with the current drugs we have for primary hypertension, we know they are vasodilators. Of course, there is a component of antifibrosis, but it is mostly vasodilators. So if you increase uh, cardiac output and if you decrease pulmonary pressure and pulmonary vascular resistance, it means that you have an action on the pulmonary vascular phenotype, I like this word, uh, of, the, of the disease. So maybe it's an indirect way to, to be more confident that there is a pulmonary vascular component which is uh, accessible to treatment. I think obviously that's something that's planned for future research, but I think it is something that's an attractive as we start using more and more of these drugs for longer periods of time in patients with sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension. The challenge we have always is that we, we work on the hemodynamics with, with clear evidence. Clear evidence, we, we, we have an effect. Uh, then how does it translate into clinical outcomes? That's the, the, major, uh, the major step we have to, 
to to pass. I think. I think. I think that's an important point. I think we we all treat these patients and we basically recommending treatment, but I think there's still a dire need for studies to prove what we're actually doing. And uh, just a, a word of caution that sometimes things that summarize is very pragmatic, very practical. Of course, it will it will lead to some debates as always. But I like the case per case um, approach because it emphasizes the need for uh, you know discussion and uh, evaluation of the complex comorbidities. And uh, of course, you have also uh, mentioned transplantation, which should be always considered when the patients have advanced disease and when they are eligible and non-responsive to medical therapy. I think I'd just like to have an added plea uh, to folks who might be watching this, that um, this treating sarcoid-associated pH isn't for everyone. And um, what we want to happen really for multiple reasons, and Mark, you alluded to this already, is that patients should get referred to expert centers because we want to do the clinical studies and we have to have critical mass to do the clinical studies. And if people out in the community are treating sarcoid-associated pH and they're not getting sent to the expert centers, we're never going to have the population to do these clinical studies. So clinical trials, in addition to the expertise, are two very good reasons to refer these patients on. And then also, most of the centers or some of the centers who have uh, sarcoid programs and clinics have transplant programs as well. So they can be evaluated uh, not only for treatment, but for clinical trials as well as potentially transplant mm -hmm. as well. And many of our patients uh, like very much their local doctors. It doesn't mean when you are in a referral center that you lose your local doctors. I mean, we work in a shared care approach. And that's really important. What you just said is very important. And we, of course, communicate a lot. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that uh, we rely on the referring doctors to co-manage these patients because we get so, so many patients, we just can't manage them by ourselves, and sometimes they live a distance away, and it's unrealistic to expect them to come back every time they have an issue. So I agree 100%. I think that, you know, the concept of having a pH center help, but I also think it has to be a sarcoid center, and uh, this is not self-serving as much as the fact is that occasionally we'll see a patient who's monitored by a pH doctor, they're missing potentially treatable interstitial lung disease, which you pointed out as an earlier part. And it may be not so much the cause of their pH, but it could be the cause of their shortness of breath that you could actually fix. All right, I think at this point I'd like to, to end the discussion, which I thought very exciting. We had a lot of good comments from various people. And I want to thank the panel again, of uh, Dr. Wells, Dr. Uh, Nathan, and Dr. Humbert. And I want to again, once again thank the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research and Bear pharmaceuticals for their support of this roundtable. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a panel discussion moderated by Dr. Robert Boffman of the University of Cincinnati, along with Professor Athol Wells of Royal Brompton Hospital, Professor Mark Umber, Head of Pulmonology and Intensive Respiratory Care at the University of Paris, and Dr. Stephen Nathan, who is the Director of the Advanced Lung Disease Program and Director of the Lung Transplant Program at Inova Fairfax Hospital. They are working on what the medical community believes is an increasing need to develop guidelines for diagnosis and management of SAF to aid in clinical trials as well as day-to-day -day management of these patients. This was part of the 2019 European Respiratory Society Congress in Madrid, Spain. 
Bayer is the original sponsor of the scientific and educational activities held during the ERS roundtable discussion along with the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. This is a special bonus edition of the Sark Fighter podcast and it has been a pleasure and a true honor to be able to use this podcast as a way of disseminating this important content. I'm your host, John Carlin. Thank you for listening.